atmosphere is contaminated by many pollutants, all of which are harmful to life and the environment. The need to clean up our air for the future health of the planet is widely understood and accepted, but how do we remove contaminants safely and efficiently? In this IFB Distinguished Visitor Lecture, Professor Urs Boltensperger from the Laboratory of Atmospheric Chemistry at the Paul Scherer Institute in Switzerland discusses how we can develop an optimised strategy for cleaner air. This lecture was recorded on 15th of August 2019 at QUT Gardens Point. We hope you enjoy this IFE podcast. Thank you very much, Soran, for the flowers. And it's definitely my pleasure to be here and uh, stay a little bit longer here than last time and uh, uh, see the wide variety of interesting things that are going on here and to share today some of the exciting research that we are doing for uh, atmospheric chemistry in this type now for cleaner air. And uh, so this title uh, is that this presentation is entitled Towards an Optimized Strategy for Cleaner Air. And as an optimistic picture, I have put up there a picture that I took myself in June 2019 in Beijing. So this is from a small mountain uh, northwest of uh, Beijing. And the visibility is uh, more than 100 kilometers. So... Clearly, this is uh, something that uh, makes us optimistic uh, for the future. The coke will uh, deal with the things that need to be improved in our knowledge and also in our strategy towards uh, this being not just an exceptional day once in a year, but hopefully uh, the majority of the days. So before I start with my talk, let me give you just a small uh, overview of uh, PSI, PSI meaning the Paul Scherer Institute. It is a research institute, belongs to the ETH domain, and it has about 2,200 employers. Uh, uh, it has uh, large facilities, uh, synchrotron light source being here, this being the free electron laser here, and lots of other activities. Our Activities of the LUC, the Laboratory of Atmospheric Chemistry, are not the core business of that institute. Uh, we are only about 45 people uh, of uh, these uh, 2,200 employees, including 16 PhD students. Two of us are professors at ETH, which is partly of this uh, ETH domain. We publish on average uh, 90 peer-reviewed papers per year and have three highly cited researchers uh, in our lab. So uh, <clears throat> quite uh, some interesting things are going on here. The laboratory is structured in three groups. Uh, the results that I will present are mostly from Andre's group here in the gas phase and aerosol chemistry group while Martin Gissel leading the aerosol physics group and Julia Schmale leading the molecular cluster and particle processes group have uh, additional activities, which I would like to present in just one slide now. Uh, so Martin deals with long-term measurements uh, of uh, climate-relevant uh, aerosol uh, properties at the Jungfreioch, this is our Cape Grim, so to speak. Yeah? So uh, in that sense, uh, uh, 
uh, also a global uh, global atmosphere watch site uh, and measuring quite a large uh, uh, number of aerosol properties. We have not started as early as Cape Kring, only in 1985. Still, we have 30 years of continuous aerosol measurements uh, and uh, lots of things are going on there. You can look into this paper or just uh, uh, watch for that special site uh, if you go to PSI uh, uh, Luck website. So if you go, just enter uh, until here to Luck, then you will find the rest uh, by yourself. Uh, or just Google Luck and Jungfrauch and you will probably find it as well. So, and the other big activity that is mostly in Julia's group is uh, on new particle formation, and that relates to this uh, cloud project at CERN, where we have built a chamber at CERN to study these processes that are involved in this new particle formation in great detail. This has turned out to be my most interesting uh, project of my career. Uh, it has also turned into a nature and science paper machine, as you can see here. Uh, the most significant success being a case when in the same hour we were able to publish two nature and one science paper coordinated by nature and science editors so that uh, also other colleagues uh, could actually comment on these three papers together uh, in these two journals simultaneously. But that would be another story. So let's focus now on uh, the, uh, our atmosphere and uh, how to clean up our air. First, and that is probably something you know all very well, we need to uh, be aware of the fact that uh, what we are dealing with is a very tiny fraction of the atmosphere. So we have a nitrogen and oxygen in our atmosphere and a very small rest then of the rest, uh, then argon and CO2 are the major activities, uh, components, uh, and among the, the rest again, helium, methane, and neon, the noble gases. And then we come to the really interesting stuff here. And for example, did you know that we had 10 times more hydrogen in the air than ozone? Yeah, but nobody talks about hydrogen in, in the air. So the stuff that we are talking about is really very, very small amount in the atmosphere. Ozone, this 70 ppb that I mentioned here, correspond to 140 microgram per cubic meter. And the, our Brisbane typical aerosol concentration is another factor of 10 lower than this already tiny component of ozone here. And uh, so uh, summarizing, we can say the concentration of the components that influence air quality is diminishingly small, but still highly relevant. So, and why is it relevant? Because it had such a big impact uh, on air quality and public health. So you see here some of these uh, uh, pictures uh, alerting us on the issue in the media. It's interesting to note that actually in the early uh, developments of industrialization, the plumes from the stacks there were actually a very optimistic picture because 
the dirty plumes meant that industrialization was going on that created uh, fortune and uh, and money and food and so on and so at that time the plumes were actually an optimistic picture of the development that was going on quite different uh, from today so this uh, air pollution is not an uh, story of today. So uh, already Seneca actually complained, saying, Ut primum gravitatum urbis excessiae, dilomodorem culinarium fumigantium, quae mote quicquit pestiferi vaporus reperunt, cum pulfre fundunt, protinus putatum varitudinem sensi. So as you all speak Latin, I don't need to translate this, uh, I guess, uh, or maybe for the two of you that don't, uh, uh, Seneca said here, as soon as I left the severeness of the city with their fumigating kitchens that uh, emit uh, a tremendous amount of vapor and uh, dust, uh, I felt how my health improved. Yeah? So one of the very early uh, complaints of uh, people about air pollution and then, of course, uh, later on, London 1955, uh, that uh, went on to increase uh, our awareness uh, of air pollution. So if we go now through the various components of air pollution, then CO2 is often included in this as well, even though CO2 is actually not really toxic, only in very high concentration when it uh, uh, actually does not allow you to have enough oxygen anymore and people die in, in wineries, for example, and so on. So, but uh, this is only, uh, only. It, it's a tremendous impact on climate uh, and it relates to the greenhouse gases, which is shown here, but I don't go into detail here. I uh, just wanted to mention that, of course, uh, in all discussion about uh, contamination of our air with uh, pollutants, we need to mention CO2 as well. Here is the full list now. Uh, and uh, besides CO2, uh, nitrogen dioxide, ozone, aerosols, heavy metals, PIHs are a concern. And I will only talk about uh, those here uh, <clears throat> to a great extent uh, because of uh, the limited time. So the various components of air pollution have multiple sources. They have different spatial distributions, different seasonal variations, and different impacts on health and climate. So we will focus now just on NO2, ozone, on PM, and within PM, mostly on organics and a bit on metals. So <clears throat> the NO2, first to start with. We have seen a, quite a decrease of NO2, and I show you here the example of Switzerland for the last 30 years, but by far not as much as you would expect from the development uh, of the emission limits. So the uh, red uh, dotted lines here are actually the evolutions of the euro emission limits. And the gray uh, clouds here are what you actually measure. On the road measured uh, uh, here from a paper uh, from Carslow. And you see that the red stuff here, that decreases by a factor of six uh, between 2000 and 2014. But the gray stuff is less than a factor of two. 
So the NO concentration of the traffic emitted by the cars has reduced only by less than a factor of two, while it should have been reduced by a factor of six. So, and that, of course, we all know about this. This is this diesel scandal. And uh, we don't need to discuss this. This is clearly, uh, clearly a criminal behavior of the car industry, not only criminal, but also stupid. I, I cannot believe that the car industry can be so stupid. But my question to you is, does this justify bans of diesel vehicles in city as they have started to do in Germany? I will ask you again a little bit later. You have time to think now about this. Uh, we will come back to this a little bit later. So ozone is related to this, and ozone has a very compli complex multitude of processes involved. Yeah, in, uh, in the stratosphere, we are all happy about the ozone. We are not so happy about the ozone in the troposphere. Uh, we have to deal with uh, multiple chemical processes here. We have to deal with vertical exchange processes. We have to deal with horizontal advection processes. Uh, so overall, quite a complex uh, multitude of processes. Uh, the uh, ozone discussion in Europe has been quite severe. And when I was in China two months ago, I, I see that the ozone discussion there just starts again. Yeah, they have now started to clean up the aerosol uh, site quite substantially with a decrease, uh, uh, as I will show uh, later, quite substantially. But with this, ozone becomes more important because uh, uh, not everything is uh, actually dealt with uh, PM anymore. So the question is, why haven't we seen a decrease uh, that corresponds to this decrease in the precursor gases here? Essentially, everything has been going down, but the number of days with exceedances in, in Europe here or in Switzerland has not really decreased a lot. And uh, so that's why uh, many uh, research groups deal with this question, and the answer is not completely on the table. First, we have to deal with the fact that modeling of ozone is not as simple as we would think. Yeah? So most people that present ozone results present the average values of their measurements. Yeah? And they uh, happily claim, oh yes, our average agrees very well with the measurements. So this is modeled versus observed ozone. Yes, that's correct. That is the case for many models or most models, but it is actually a, a compensation of errors. At low concentrations, the model overestimates the ozone concentration, and at high concentrations, the model underestimates the concentration. And that, of course, is, is useless, because uh, especially at these high concentration, we want to know uh, what is the exact value and how this would change here. And uh, the question is, how can this be improved? And uh, we have done ourselves some studies on this. Uh, uh, and one point relates to this uh, wrong emissions of NOx. Yeah, if you correct for the much smaller reduction in emissions of NOx uh, by the traffic, then you see that indeed this uh, brings an increase uh, in the ozone concentrations uh, at the highest uh, concentrations. And then also, 
the solar brightening, which is the opposite of the solar dimming, has an effect because if you have higher solar radiation uh, in the planetary boundary layer, then atmospheric chemistry is faster, and that results in more ozone concentration. It's only 1%, but still it does contribute uh, to the errors that we've seen here. Also, if we have an increase in the solar surface radiation, then we will produce more isoprene emissions, uh, and that also results in a small increase. Then all the changes that we have in our atmosphere, they result in changes of meteorology, uh, not only the temperature, but also circulation, atmospheric stability, and that also results in changes in regional and global transport, both vertical and uh, horizontal. And that, of course, all needs to be taken into account as well if you look at this. Okay, that was on NO2 and on ozone. Now let's focus on uh, my hobby, which is aerosols. And uh, so for the rest of this talk, we will deal with aerosols. Everybody knows what aerosols are. So it's liquid or solid particles suspended in the atmosphere. And uh, if we talk about PM10, so these are particles with an aerodynamic diameter smaller than 10 micrometer. We have uh, primary and secondary particles. Primary are emitted directly as particles into the atmosphere. Secondary particles are formed in the atmosphere based on emission of gases precursors which react in the atmosphere and form secondary material, either by condensing on existing stuff in the atmosphere or by forming new particles by themselves. But I will not talk about new particle formation here because then you would need to sit in here for at least two hours. Okay, why are we interested in aerosols? Uh, because aerosols affect our health and have an impact on climate. So in Europe, the PM concentration has strongly, strongly re decreased in the last 25 years, as you can see here, again for Switzerland, <clears throat> more than a factor of two, actually. And uh, that was a bit fast. Uh, and uh, uh, so we have uh, now... Uh, just uh, seen the situation in Switzerland that with this standard of 20 microgram for PM10 uh, is now reached for most of the sites in, in Switzerland. Uh, and this, of course, has to be uh, compared to other sites. Uh, China, this is the typical picture that you show for China, uh, or this combination to show the difference. But with the developments in China, uh, <clears throat> with this uh, air pollution control action plan that was implemented in 2013, we have seen a lot of mitigation actions, uh, for example, that uh, uh, move from coal to natural gas uh, and also the banning for heating uh, for uh, specific times of the year. And this has resulted in a substantial decrease of the uh, PM concentration <clears throat> in uh, just uh, five years here, uh, which is uh, quite interesting. Still, <clears throat> the two major things are we have uh, challenging meteorology at many places, and we have many sources that contribute to the overall PM concentration. And in order to define the best possible mitigation strategy, we need to know these sources. 
And now let's talk about the uh, identification of uh, these various sources. And this is done by source apportionment uh, of organic aerosol, for example. You can do it also for inorganic aerosol, but there it is rather simple because when one knows the, for example, the NOx emissions pretty well, yeah, also the SO2 emissions uh, pretty well, and then you can just attribute uh, the sulfate and nitrate components uh, according to these emissions, and that's it. That's more much complicated in the uh, organic aerosol, and that's why you need other methods here. And one of them, a very powerful one, is positive matrix factorization, where you try to mimic the data matrix with a supposition of different profiles that have a varying uh, concentration contributions to this individual profile. So these are mass spectra typically that are constant for the individual components but varying in their concentration. And you just tell the computer, please minimize the residual matrix and then give me a selection of sources and I then need to make a selection how many sources I want to accept in this. Of course, you can accept 100 sources uh, and then your error matrix will be the smallest, but that is not reasonable because then different sources are split up. So it's the uh, brain of the scientist that is responsible to select the right number of sources and give the right names to uh, these individual uh, sources. Based on the mass spectra here, you can actually give then specific names uh, to these sources. And we have done this for the first time just in 2007, yeah, where we came up with uh, uh, these sources here, oxygenated organic aerosol, hydrocarbon-like organic aerosol, which is traffic, then some wood com uh, combustion and also some cooking-related uh, components. And as I said, this was the first paper in 2007. And just two years later, uh, in this science paper by Jose Jimenez et al., all these sites here had done the same and have come up with very similar solutions, so showing that uh, this positive matrix factorization of AMS data, aerosol mass spectrometer data, is very powerful in discriminating the organic aerosol in traffic, biomass burning, and uh, oxygenated organic aerosol, mostly, and, and some other smaller components. So great for this but not great for the oxygenated organic aerosol because there we have a problem uh, because the aerosol mass spectrometer fragments the individual molecules and uh, gives us only relatively small fragments where the initial information of the uh, original molecule is lost. And that's why we cannot actually indicate from the fragments which was the original molecule, and that's why we cannot attribute an, uh, such a fragment to a specific precursor gas. We cannot say, was this uh, now from biogenic emissions, or was it from wood combustion, or from traffic, for example. This can now be done with the easy the easy is the extractive electrospray ionization method that we have developed at uh, PSI. 
And I can give you just one example here where we uh, find now uh, many more sources. Uh, all these down here are actually oxygenated organic aerosol. And the two green here relate to daytime SOA, daytime secondary organic aerosol. And both of them have a strong signature from oxidized monoterpenes. You can tell actually these molecules here, they must have originated from uh, the emission of monoterpenes. And that will not be possible with the uh, AMS, because if the AMS, all what you see, would see is, is down here, yeah, up to here about. And this would not be seen because all these would have been fragmented. We also see nighttime SOA here that uh, contain then lots of uh, nitrogen uh, in there. And <clears throat> the good thing is if we add up all these four OOA factors, we find a diurnal variation that matches quite nicely the diurnal variation of the aerosol mass spectrometer. So the uh, some of the data are equivalent, but with the easy, you'll find much more detailed information about the SOA than with the AMS. So that is all great, but uh, if you want to do this at many sites and for longer terms, then you are lost with the aerosol mass spectrometer. Typically, such an instrument costs half a million, and uh, it also needs about one year of student work to analyze a campaign of, uh, let's say, six weeks. And uh, we would not have so many students, and that's why we looked for alternative methods to do this uh, on the long term or at many different sizes. And, and we do this via filter measurements, and then we extract these filters, create uh, Renebulized uh, aerosol from this, dry these uh, cloud droplets, and then feed these dried aerosol into the aerosol mass spectrometer, and then do exactly the same. Can do this uh, uh, PMF again on these uh, uh, filter extracts, and then apply the same uh, methods here. And we have done this here for the very first time uh, in uh, with filters on uh, from China, and. <clears throat> That uh, paper was published in, in Nature and created a huge impact in, in China. Everybody in China knows about this paper. I've been in a conference uh, in October last year in China and saw this picture at least 20 times in different presentations. So uh, it really has made an impact because it tells now that uh, it's not only the primary aerosol, but also the secondary aerosol that is important. Uh, and <clears throat> in order to clean up the air in China, but also at other places, you do not only need to focus on the primary emissions, but also need to reduce the uh, precursor gases that then create uh, secondary organic aerosol and secondary inorganic aerosol. The NOx and the SO2 is included here as well. So that may sound to you quite natural today, but in China, and at this time, uh, this is five years ago, that was still quite new, and then that's why this uh, made such a, uh, <clears throat> a big impression there. So having said that the secondary organic aerosol is important, now, of course, we need to look at this. And so we have done uh, uh, lots of different samples. I show you one example here where we have put in uh, 
exhaust from uh, wood combustion into our chamber. Then we turn on the light here, and as we can see, within five hours, we produce much more organic aerosol than we had as primary organic aerosol. The black stuff here is the black carbon that is uh, <clears throat> corrected for wall losses. Assuming that uh, black carbon stays constant, that's why it is constant, because it is assumed to be constant. And then uh, using the same uh, correction factor for low losses for the organics, uh, because the particles are internally mixed, we come up with this uh, evolution of the organic aerosol. And uh, as said, uh, this is much more second organic aerosol within a very short time than was emitted as primary organic aerosol. Confirming what I just said before, that uh, the second organic aerosol is important. And that's why we looked at now uh, many different emission sources, uh, besides the biomass burning, also cooking, road vehicles, all types of road vehicles, everything that has wheels, uh, aircraft engines, uh, ship engines as well. And we did this with our original uh, chamber here, where also uh, Zoran uh, participated in, in an early campaign here, and Branca as well, actually, uh, with a mobile chamber or a chamber that can be cooled, or if we do not have time, uh, also with a PAM chamber, which is actually a flow-through reactor, and which must be used when you have a highly varying signal, for example, from a aircraft engine uh, or during a cycle on a test bench from a vehicle, then you need to do this uh, with a PAM chamber. And I want to give you now just a few examples of that. Two-stroke scooters are really the worst of it all. Yeah? So... <clears throat> On the left-hand side here, you see the emissions uh, of uh, these uh, two-stroke scooters compared to others. It's uh, one to three orders of magnitude higher for two-stroke scooters than for any other vehicle. And uh, <clears throat> this is the case for the primary organic aerosol as well as for the aged aer aerosol here. And uh, also in terms of benzene here, this is just incredibly high. And if you think of all these scooters uh, at, at that time still being uh, two-stroke scooters, you can imagine that this creates an incredible amount of uh, pollution uh, in this uh, city in Southeast Asia. I don't mention the country. It's not China, uh, especially not now, because in China, all these are now electric, and that is really a big improvement uh, and part of the success story uh, that uh, has been seen in China. Gasoline cars are not as good as you would expect. Yeah, So... Here I compare gasoline cars on the left-hand side compared to diesel cars uh, on the right-hand side. And this is not an error. So down here, this is really the emissions and also the second organic aerosol from diesel cars with a functioning particle filter. I do not talk about diesel cars without a particle filter. These are uh, no-goes. Yeah? So every diesel car needs to have a functioning particle filter. Otherwise, you store it in your garage or uh, uh, recycle it. Yeah? So, uh, but 
If it has a functioning particle filter, then the emissions are really quite low, much lower than for gasoline cars, and even more so at low temperature, because at low temperature, the gasoline cars uh, emit huge amounts of VSCs, especially when they start. Just imagine, you take your car out of your garage, or even better, you had it in, the, in your front yard, yeah, at minus seven degrees Celsius, and then you run it for one kilometer. You measure the emissions that, uh, VLC emissions that your car made in this very first kilometer. How many kilometers can you drive once your catalyst is hot now until you have emitted the same amount of VOCs as in the very first cold kilometer? A thousand kilometers. It's, it's amazing uh, how much emissions these the gasoline cars have as long as the catalyst is actually not hot. And uh, that's why uh, this is now an issue. And people think about uh, uh, modern type activities to reduce this. Yeah? For example, that when you open the door, the car starts to heat uh, the catalyst because you only open the door of your car if you want to drive, yeah? And uh, that's why, or on your cell phone, you can activate the catalyst or something like this. That will come uh, in the near future to preheat the catalyst and avoid this uh, 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 tremendous emissions because if you just go shopping in the two kilometer away uh, shopping hall uh, and use your car for this, you produce just incredible amounts of VOCs and these then produce uh, SOA uh, uh, quite rapidly and that of course is not what you want. So this is something that uh, needs to be taken into account. And now I come back to this question, yeah? Is it reasonable to eliminate a diesel car including also uh, the diesel cars with a functioning particle filter and replace it by a dirty gasoline car? I think not. Yeah? So this is simply a very stupid uh, decision of politicians who need to show that they are active and uh, do not really understand the full story here. So, and uh, in, in Switzerland, I am a member of the air quality uh, commission that uh, advises our federal council, and we are strongly against this. So we think this is uh, really something stupid and uh, should not be done, uh, neither in Germany nor in other countries. And there's interesting mechanisms going on here. Yeah? So why should a gasoline engine be allowed to emit more soot than a diesel car? That has been the case until actually uh, 2018. And only since uh, 2018 here, the same emission standards are now in force. But even though that was announced early, the manufacturers of the cars are not ready now. Yeah? They put all their money and uh, uh, initiatives into lobbying against these standards rather than thinking about uh, and working for uh, new uh, emission control systems to actually clean up their exhaust and does the same. So uh, 
there, there's only a relatively small number of models available right now because of this issue, and uh, this will change. But it is very similar to the situation in 2001 when Peugeot was the first one coming up with these diesel particle filters. And some of you may remember that all the other car manufacturers said, this will not work. Yeah, Peugeot will drive his whole company to the wall uh, because uh, this uh, will break down and uh, it uh, will not work. And a few years later, everybody was there with the same catalysts uh, and the same diesel particle filters. So this will happen now again. Now, wood combustion, uh, uh, as an example, what you can do. Lots of modeling of secondary organic aerosol actually shows in the model much less uh, secondary organic aerosol than what you find in the ambient atmosphere. And there was lots of questions, why is this the case? And the uh, reason is actually simple. Because not all the precursor gases in the exhaust was measured. If you measure now all these uh, non-traditional VOCs, the NTVOCs here, then suddenly your result is not so bad anymore. Here, the blue one is the primary organic aerosol, and the red one here is the secondary organic aerosol from the traditional semi-volatile organic compounds that were typically measured from such exhaust lines. And you see, indeed, the sum of the blue and the red is by far much lower than the measured organic aerosol. But if you measure now all these non-traditional VOCs, which are included here, then just by measuring these uh, 22 uh, components and uh, two lump components, uh, then you come up with something that matches uh, the measurement actually quite well. And that is good news for the modelers, because when you put this now into regional model, we use COMEX here for this, then we can reduce the negative bias here uh, quite dramatically from minus 61% without including this uh, new parameterization uh, down to minus 29%. Uh, so the difference between the black line here and uh, the model line here is, is much smaller than, than here. And by only including the emissions from wood exhaust, it does not yet include the emissions from all the other uh, VOC emissions, uh, which also produce secondary organic aerosol. With that, you will expect that, that this uh, will even improve further. So yes, if we measure all the components that can produce secondary organic cursor, then the model is indeed able to reproduce the measured uh, uh, SOA or total organic cursor quite well as well. Now a little bit on models, so uh, on metals. Uh, Metals are also relevant, uh, and uh, we have done this uh, uh, for a study in London, coming up with all these different sources. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, these are now even more uh, uh, multiple sources uh, than uh, for the organic aerosol. And uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on here. The local influence is quite dramatic. Uh, we find up to 30 times higher concentrations of these 
local components, brakeware, traffic-related, and resuspended dust. Uh, then at the rural side, uh, which is the green side down here, so compare the red and the green. And typically that is in the coarse mode here, as you can see, while the natural sources here are uh, uh, either influenced by the resuspension, like the HC salt. Yeah? If sea salt is deposited and then resuspended, of course, that will be influenced uh, by the uh, uh, anthropogenic activity as well, while wood burning, which is a regional source here, has no concentration differences uh, or much smaller ones at these uh, different sources. Now, finally, let me come to aerosols and health. And uh, <clears throat> this is something that really uh, uh, drives me crazy. Yeah? If uh, we hear an epidemiologist somewhere, he always shows such plots. Some mortality or some diseases or whatever, and on the x-axis, it's always either PM2.5 or PM10. Nothing else. But we all know that the toxicity of different aerosol components are different. Yeah? So sea salt is much less uh, toxic than uh, the diesel suit, uh, for example, or, or wood combustion suit. And uh, so it is not to be expected that uh, here fine particles are just fine particles. Aerosols are not aerosols. Here we need to have something more uh, uh, relevant to our ambient atmosphere. The question is what? So. How do we link the source apportionment with the epidemiology and with the toxicology? This process here is what the epi people typically do. They measure PM2.5 and they link it uh, to some mortality or cardiovascular diseases and they show significant correlation and that's it. Yeah? But I want to see some uh, better understanding of these processes. And uh, one way to go for this, uh, and then Soren would fully agree with me on this, uh, because he also measures us uh, ROS here, reactive oxygen species, which influence the redox cycling, can create an oxidative stress, and this can also then create uh, cardiovascular diseases via cytokine signaling, systemic inflammation, and then DNA alteration and protein deactivation. So... Rather, we need to go into the difficult work to understand these processes here than just uh, continue to do this uh, uh, epidemiological correlation analysis. In order to do this, we first need to determine, of course, which exhaust has which effects on uh, system models that uh, are relevant to our atmosphere. And that, of course, you can do this uh, with uh, epithelia that you expose to aerosols. So uh, here we have a car that we feed uh, the exhaust into our uh, Teflon bag here. Uh, we measure the, uh, or we expose this original POA to the cells uh, that we have put into this chamber, and then we age the aerosol in our chamber and also uh, expose the aged aerosol to our chamber. And we see uh, a significant increase of the cytotoxicity with a particle dose 
except for the cystic fibrosis and also for this uh, uh, <clears throat> the uh, uh, BEAs to be, which do not seem to really be a realistic model for healthy people. So that already shows a problem here. There is lots of different uh, cells and also lots of different diseases, and we all die from many different diseases. Yeah. So we cannot expect that one single measurement will do it. We need to look at many different uh, proxies in order to come up with a full understanding of all the possible pathways where atmospheric chemistry can influence our health. So <clears throat> one way is to do this uh, reactive oxygen species measurements. Uh, and this is from a paper uh, that is in ACPD uh, using a, a similar uh, ROS uh, uh, type uh, as the one that uh, Zoran uses. Uh, uh, and clearly we see that uh, <clears throat> the secondary organic aerosol has a much higher ROS content. This is normalized per uh, uh, aerosol in nanomole ROS per microgram of aerosol, much higher uh, ROS content than the primary aerosol here. And interestingly, if we compare Beijing and the Bern, for example, yeah, which are two quite different cities, uh, the ROS content is actually quite similar. So, of course, in, in China, the aerosol concentration is much higher, so the ROS concentration is also much higher, but the content in terms of ROS per microgram of uh, aerosol is, is actually quite similar. That uh, tells us that such ROS measurements could be at least one useful proxy towards such an understanding, but it needs much more. And in a paper that is under review now in Nature, and that's why I cannot show you these slides, so I will only tell you what is in that paper. I hope that you will soon be able to read it in Nature. There we looked at the, the chemical composition, including as much different chemical components as possible. Then we did the, the PMF, as I mentioned before, on all this, uh, uh, and that included actually many different sites in, in, in Switzerland. And then we measured also the ROS on all these filters simultaneously and determined by linear regression the contribution of each source to these ROS signals. And then we used the, uh, our COMEX model to simulate the ROS concentration over whole Europe based on, because when we have the ROS contribution of each source, our model will tell us uh, what is the contribution of each source for each grid cell in the regional model. And then, of course, that allows you this distribution of the uh, <clears throat> uh, ROS concentration over the full range. And then you can combine this with the population density to predict mortality. The results were actually quite interesting. The map for ROS looks completely different from the map of the chemical components. As I said before, as we expect, yeah, aerosols are not aerosols. That's why if you look at the ROS, then the chemical or the distribution of, uh, over Europe will be very different from the distribution of uh, the chemical composition. 
But that has also an implication, yeah? The decrease that we see now in PM in many countries, including China also, might not be reflected in a corresponding decrease in the air pollution-related mortality, yeah? So if we clean up with components that are less toxic, then the decrease in mortality might actually be smaller than we would expect from the decrease in the PM concentration. And that's why in order to follow this over longer time periods, we need to have better uh, measurements uh, on these real effects of uh, aerosols and, of course, also the gases, air pollution on our mortality to come up with a better, with a better picture. So... <laughs> The remaining challenges here are clearly we need the best combination of markers. One alone will not do it. DTT is certainly not sufficient for uh, determining the oxidative potential. It needs a wide variety of these, and typically a combination will be needed. Uh, we used three different uh, ROS measurements in that nature uh, manuscript that I mentioned before, but it's not finished yet. It does need more. I, I heard a talk uh, at, the, uh, at the Asian Aerosol Conference in Hong Kong this year by Tony Wexler. Oh, no, it was a poster, which was quite amazing. So uh, let me explain what he showed on this poster. He had emissions from a road tunnel, and he exposed the emissions of that road tunnel, roughly 25 micrograms per cubic meter, not really tremendously high, to mice. Two different types of mice, one that had a gene for Alzheimer and others that did not have this gene for Alzheimer. And then he pokes his mouth either to that air from the tunnel or to clean air. And of course, mice that uh, uh, got exposed to the clean air, they did not develop Alzheimer, independent of gene or without gene. The mice that did not have the gene and were exposed to the dirty air from the, or not so dirty air from the tunnel, they did not develop Alzheimer. But the mice that had the gene and were exposed to 25 microgram per cubic meter of uh, aerosol from the tunnel did develop Alzheimer in just three months. And that is really disturbing to me. Yeah, it's scary that uh, if you have the wrong genes, uh, the only way to escape is actually to go to the Jungfraujoch, yeah? so where the air is clean enough so that you don't have uh, this uh, uh, threat of, of air pollution there. So I believe this will all be relatively simple. The most difficult thing might be to convince the epidemiologists that this is a worthwhile approach to do epidemiological studies because we need to collaborate with them, yeah? but they need to collaborate with us in order to come up with uh, something that is more relevant uh, in terms of air pollution and health aspects. So with this, I would like to thank you, but I would also like to thank all the people that contributed to this, mostly, of course, the, the group leaders of the LUC and many, many, many other people here, many, many collaborating groups. You can imagine that this is not just our work, but lots of groups that collaborated with us. And of course, this always needs a little bit of money. Yeah. So uh, I would like to thank uh, the Swiss National Science Foundation, the European Commission, the Swiss EPA, Meteor Swiss, and so on, uh, uh, 
and once again, thank you for your attention. to a podcast from the IFE. To stay up to date with our podcast, please subscribe to our channel. You can also visit us on the web at www.qut.edu.au slash IFE. And we're also on Twitter at IFE underscore QUT and Instagram at IFE.QUT. We really hope you enjoyed this IFE podcast.